Uh, our text today, specifically Exodus 34, verses 5 to 8. We're going to look a bit wider at the surrounding context as well, but that's the core text we're doing today. So if you'll turn with me, I'm reading from the New American Standard. And this is talking about Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai when God hid him in the, hid him in the cleft of the rock to reveal himself. Verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. That's referring to Moses. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So my outline for today's passage is pretty straightforward as a precursor to what's coming. My three-point outline basically is that God declares who he is, God defines who he is, and God demonstrates who he is. God declares, defines, and demonstrates who he is, and we don't get to do that. Now, these four verses are God's disclosure of himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, but we need to go back a bit to understand, to set the scene, to understand the gross sin that precipitated this whole staggering encounter. At the end of Exodus 31, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, version one, basically. And what he saw was absolutely shocking to him as he came down with those, that first set of Ten Commandments. I'll never forget, it was absolutely shocking to me to read this story. I had never read the Bible before and I was reading through and so I just don't know what comes next. And I'm, I guess I'm that naive kid who would get up in the morning and turn on the cartoons and think to myself, well, maybe today is the day that the coyote is going to catch the roadrunner. <laughs> Rockets on roller skates, that could work. But... The same thing with the, it's almost like a metaphor for the history of Israel wandering, isn't it? Is that maybe today is the day that they will obey God. And as Moses came down, I'm, I'm reading this for the first time. I can remember thinking, surely this time they won't grumble. They're going to obey God this time. I mean, he has taken them out of Egypt. He has performed all these signs. He's put up with their grumbling. He's fed them in the desert just repeatedly. And I'm thinking, surely... Surely this time they're going to do what they're told. But what did Moses find when he returned to his people? They were dancing around an idol of their own invention, the golden calf. Just uh, jump across to Exodus or go back to Exodus 32, verses 23 to 24, uh, to read Aaron's explanation for the golden calf. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 32. For they said to me, straight away, like Adam and Eve in the garden, <laughs> the woman who you gave to me, someone else, nothing's changed. We like to blame someone else. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me 
and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Those of us with children have heard that kind of comment before. It gets very quiet in the house. Some disaster is brewing with our kids. And when you finally walk in and you walk in on just complete catastrophe that's happened in one of the rooms of the house, you say, what happened? Ah, I don't know. I just was just here and I was just doing my own thing and this happened. And and Aaron, I I love that. I just threw the gold in the fire and the cow came out. Other than that, I can't tell you anything. It's probably inspired by one of the many cow deities in Egypt. They had a lot of cow gods, so he probably had seen that. But interesting question. Just think for a moment. Why isn't the second commandment redundant? Have a think about that for a moment. Why do you think the second commandment is not redundant? We have the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, why isn't the second commandment covered by the first? Why would we bother with the second? Well, because you can actually make an idol out of the one true God. You should have no other gods before you, but you also shouldn't make the God we know into some visible image, the invisible God into some visible representation. That's why the Roman Catholics don't have that second commandment. When Aaron unveiled the calf, it was described as, he said, this is chapter 32, verse 4. Aaron says, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, what is God's primary description of himself in the book of Exodus? Over and over again. Just do a search on the word Egypt and God speaking about it. And you'll see repeatedly God is saying, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And now Aaron ascribes it to this golden calf. Probably one who they prefer because he wouldn't, you know, a deaf, dumb and mute God who would not intrude on all their fun. And Aaron ascribed that work, the God, this is behold the God who brought you out of Israel, out of Egypt, sorry. This is him, this cow. Now, just because we don't have the ability to smelt metal doesn't make us immune from the same error, does it? In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 to 11 refers to this event and what subsequently happened to them as a warning to us not to repeat their idolatry. For example, see, the God who affirms gay marriage is a modern golden calf with all sorts of professing believers dancing around it these days. And we commit Aaron's and Israel's sin every time we begin a sentence with the words, to me, God is like this. Have you heard that before? Have you said that before? To me, God is like... That's the same error. We are defining God on our terms when we do that. And we're not allowed to do that. It's what we see in John 6. When Jesus had returned from Samaria, he'd fed the thousands earlier and there was crowds waiting for him. He was popular. Were they wanting to be disciples? No, really, they just wanted their bellies filled again. As you read the account in John 6 and Jesus tells them, I'm the bread of life, come down from heaven. And they keep trying to tempt him. Do another sign for us with food so that we can be fed. Basically, we'll recognise your divinity if you jump through our hoops. You remember the 
story of the thief on the cross when everyone other than the repentant thief says, if you are the Christ, come down. In other words, meet my demands for divinity. It's so offensive. I'm reminded of a public discussion between the Calvinist Michael Horton and Arminian Roger Olson, where Olson, Roger Olson said that if he found out that the God of Calvinism is true, he could never worship that God. Does, does, does just a, did, did a shudder of fear just run through your body when you heard those words? It did me. Wow, you'd say that? <laughs> that he has to meet your demands? That's one of the most terrifying things I've ever heard from someone who says they're Christian. The demand to worship God on one's own terms is just as idolatrous as Aaron's golden calf. Calvin was right when he said that the human mind is a perpetual factory of idols. In the beginning, God created man in his image and ever since then, we've been trying to return the favour. Just this last month, we saw Marty Sampson, one of Hillsong's most prolific songwriters, come out on social media to announce his apostasy. After 20 years as a songwriter, he decided to just... And, and, and if you read through the post, if you read through the post, you can see that what Marty Sampson was really saying was he was rejecting the perversion of God he'd been taught at Hillsong. Uh, people, a lot of people in Australia asked me what I thought about Marty Sampson. I said, he's right about the God of Hillsong. He's wrong about the God of the Bible. He found out that the God he'd been presented with, a God who had the, his, his attribute of justice never mentioned. And so the, the, the big cosmic hug God that he'd been presented just didn't square with his life experience and he had a crisis and he just publicly abandoned the faith or what he previously believed. Well, that reminds us again the importance of this passage, doesn't it? This is not just ancient history. This is what happens now. This is an ever-present problem. What a reminder of the importance of presenting and knowing God in all his attributes as he presents himself in Scripture. The true believer, the true worshipper, seeks God's face and not his hand. We may initially respond by fleeing the wrath to come, and we should, that's good. But if we are really his people, then we'll seek to know him. Seek to know him. In fact, Jesus in his high priestly prayer equated eternal life with knowing God. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, Jesus Christ equates knowing God, that is eternal life. If you don't know God, you don't have, if you don't know the true God, you don't have eternal life. And that's exactly what we see with Moses, that, that he desires to know God, that his desire is not to seek God's hand but his face. And even in the midst of that catastrophic rebellion among the Israelite people, Moses didn't pray for God to fix the problems he faced Instead, he expressed his, his desire to know God more. Verse, chapter 33, verse 18 says, Please show me your glory. So God's wrath burnt hot against Israel's idolatry and he was set on their utter destruction. And Moses had to intercede on behalf of Israel 
for the sake of God's name. Exodus 32, verses 11 to 14. I'll just read through there. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought from the land of Egypt and with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all the land of which I've spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he would, said he would do to his people. It's important to note here that Moses didn't plead with God out of fear for the people's safety, but out of zeal for God's great name. It also needs to be said that when it says God changing his mind, this does not mean that God's rejigging his sovereign plan all of a sudden, changing his mind. The fact that God's wrath didn't completely destroy Israel is completely consistent with his covenant faithfulness and eagerness to pardon sinners. As Riken comments, God did what he had intended to do from the beginning. He answered the prayer of the mediator, Moses, whom he had appointed by saving the people who he had, cho he had chosen from all eternity. So God was about to reveal himself to Moses as described in our text. A declaration a definition and a demonstration of who he is. These words would be quoted or referred to dozens of times in the Old Testament by people like King David and the prophets Joel and Jonah. This was a landmark event in Israel's history. And God responded to Moses' request to be shown his glory in Exodus 33, 19 to 23. And what we find out is that God's glory is dangerous. God is so majestic and holy that it's deadly dangerous to be near him. And God informed Moses of the impossibility of him or anyone ever surviving a full frontal encounter with God's glory. That's one of the strongest arguments against the supposed laughing revivals I witnessed back in days when I attended a charismatic church, is that when you look through the Bible at people having encounters with God, real encounters with God, they're not laughing, are they? They think they're going to die. It's so fearful to be in the presence of God's holiness. And for that reason, God mercifully was going to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock and conceal most of his glory, that Moses might just see the edges of it. In Exodus 34, verses 1 to 4, as well, we see God calling Moses to prepare for a second version of the Ten Commandments. And just draw your attention in this passage to that we see here the pattern for divine inspiration of Scripture. I think this is interesting to note here that in Exodus 34, verse 1, God says, I will write on the tablets, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Yet later in the chapter, in verse 27, we read that it was Moses who wrote the commandments. So who wrote it? Moses did, true. God did, true. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit, as it says in, it says in um, when Peter spoke later on in Scripture, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And here we see a concrete example of this happening and authorship being attributed to both Moses and God. And when these men speak, 
by the Holy Spirit, they are speaking God's word. It's as if God is speaking. And God certainly did speak. He is a speaking God. As we come to our text in verse 5, God declares who he is. Verses 5 to the first part of verse 6, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. First point, God declares who he is. God speaks on his own behalf concerning who he is and what he is like. God reveals here that he is speaking to God. God reveals here that he is speaking. He is a speaking God. Moses wanted to see him, right? Show me your glory. Moses wanted to see him, but rather than telling us what he saw, what does Moses tell us? He tells us what he heard, what God said about himself. If you're a believer, then one day you will see God in all his glory. But this side of eternity, that would kill us. Remember that God had just said to Moses, no man can see me and live. God speaks. We have his word. He is a speaking God. And he has spoken to us in his word. God's chosen means of self-revelation is through what he says. And that's why Grace Church is unashamedly fixated on the authority, inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. That's why I travel to come to Master's Seminary. That's why I count it such a great privilege to attend this church. That's why the heavenly tourism books are so shameful. Not only are they fabrications, they implicitly deny our total dependence on God's revealed word. Moses didn't start with the words, well, to me, God is like, God spoke, Moses listened. And God has chosen to speak to us in his inerrant word. Are you listening to him? Furthermore, it is the written word that reveals the living word. As we see from the beginning of John's gospel, don't we? John 1.1, 1, 1, we know that verse. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus Christ is the culmination of everything God wants to communicate with us. Verse 14 of John 1 goes on to tell us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yet verse 18 in John 1 says that no one has seen God at any time. Now that's not a contradiction because verse 18 continues, the only begotten of God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So the word of God explained the Father while he remains unseen. So rather than pursuing our own mountaintop experience with God, we should recognise that God has spoken to us in his Son. We have a tremendous advantage over Moses, don't we? As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. God left us a book, not a series on Netflix. And it is in his word that he declares who he is. I'm reminded of that old bumper sticker. Something I've seen, it's an American thing. You know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You've seen that bumper sticker. It's, it's not accurate. It should read, God said it and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. 
So, point one, God declares who he is. He is a speaking God. He declares who he is. He has declared who he is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as reported in his word. He's a speaking God. He has spoken to us. Secondly, God defines who he is. We don't get to define God. He defines himself. The second part of verse 6, what does God say? He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Interesting to note here, God didn't define himself according to his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his immutability. He talks about his attributes, that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When I started to understand Reformed theology and understand that the biggest story of Scripture is not my redemption, but God's glory, I started to understand something powerful about this. Did you ever have those periods when you wondered, why did Adam and Eve have to mess up? I mean, it's all so good. Why did they do that? If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. So stupid to think that. If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Why did that have to happen? But you see, we worship a God who has these attributes and he desires to put these attributes on display. He is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you ever think without a fall, these attributes of God would forever remain hidden? God would not be able to display them to us. So though sin is our fault, sin is how God makes these attributes known to us. And also that the attributes God chose to show Moses were the attributes he needed to hear about because they were in a lot of trouble. This is good news. This is what I'm like. I'm merciful. I'm gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So God... Through our sin, God is able to put these these glorious truths on display. So thankful to know that. God is that way. Why? Because he says so. And he gets to define who he is. God has told us what he's like. We must worship him on those terms, not according to the golden calves of our own imagination. First of all, he says, the Lord, the Lord, here. God pronounces his name, repeating it for emphasis. It's more than just a title. It represents his entire being and nature. He is the God of creation who covenanted with Moses at the burning bush, saying, he is who he is, and this is who he is. He's merciful. And after the gross idolatry of Israel, this is a comforting reminder that God is compassionate and sympathetic. The more we grasp our sin, the more it magnifies the mercy of God in not giving us what we deserve. Remember the, Jesus talking to the Pharisee sitting beside him. Who rejoices the most? He is forgiven of much or he is forgiven of little? Also, God is gracious. 
In my 30 years as a Christian, I have observed that there are far more churchgoers who talk about grace than those who actually know what it means. It fundamentally means undeserved favour. And we live in this therapeutic culture where no one seems to want to talk about why we don't deserve that favour. I'll tell you something, I lived in Denmark. My wife is Danish for five years. And it's, a, it's, it's got a massive welfare culture, a huge entitlement mentality. It's very difficult to explain grace in an entitlement culture. Very difficult. Because we think we deserve something. We have to understand that we don't. Be very wary of people who want to talk about justice all the time. It reflects a failure to really understand who God is and who they are and what we really deserve. I can remember there was a union representative where I worked in the factory because everyone had a union and he used to try and recruit me all the time and I would evangelise him until he either converted or stopped annoying me. But he used to always say, I've been fighting for justice. I'm fighting for justice. He was a raving red would wear a Stalin shirt or a Mao Tung shirt to work every day. And, and he would say, I'm fighting for justice. And I would always say to him, no, you're not. And that would just wind him up even more. <laughs> He'd say, I'm fighting for justice. No, you're not. Eventually he said, why are you saying that? I said, because you don't need justice, you need mercy. If you got justice right now, you would be a scorch mark on the ground. <laughs> you need mercy. You need grace. God is a gracious God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Is God fair? People say God's not fair. True, he's not fair, but that's good news, not bad news. Aren't you thankful he doesn't give us what we deserve? More good news. God is slow to anger. People who marvel at the rare Old Testament occasions where Israel is sent to destroy a whole people group. You know, that's the charge some people love to point out about the Bible. There's a caricature, a, caricature, a popular one, you know, that basically Old Testament God, wrath, judgment, New Testament God, love and mercy. That's just not an honest reading of the Bible, is it? If you have a careful reading of the Old Testament, what you're going to marvel about, like in this instance, how does God put up with this? Why does he keep delaying his wrath? Any honest reading of the Bible will, will puzzle you at, at God's patience, that he is slow to anger. Because we get angry a lot quicker. Think about Israel in slavery for 400 years because God was delaying his judgment on the Canaanites. Incredibly wicked people, but he delayed it. He is slow to anger. It doesn't also mean that God takes a while before he eventually blows a gasket. No, he is not capricious or volatile. This is him condescending and just explaining that he, he is a merciful God, that he has a settled righteousness. It's not him just losing his temper. He has a settled righteousness and it is eventually manifest in deliberate judgments. We see that with the flood. It was delayed, but it came. The fact that we are all here today living and breathing is empirical proof that God is slow to anger. Right? We would do well to meditate on that fact. 
a long time before we ever considered demanding justice for some particular reason. So our merciful, gracious, long-suffering God also abounds in love and faithfulness. The Hebrew words here are often translated as loving kindness and truth. So God's covenant love for his people here is connected with his unwavering commitment to that love. God's love for his people is boundless. Once he promises to love, he keeps on loving. This pairing of love and faithfulness, grace and truth, make a common pair in the Old Testament. And it would seem that the Apostle John had that Hebrew pair in mind when he opened his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14, describing Jesus as full of grace and truth. He is, he is full of love. I'll say that I turned 50 this year and um, my 50th anniversary, it's, it's kind of strange. I was born the same year John MacArthur started pastoring here. That's just blows my mind. But getting older is not a lot of fun. I can't say I'm a huge fan of it. it one, one advantage is that... that most of the incredibly stupid things I've done in my life were done before smartphones and social media. <laughs> and I feel sorry for the younger generation for that reason. But also that I guess when I was married, I, I, I had this delusional idea that I'm pretty easy to love. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the 2020 hindsight you gain after half a century is that I'm not easy to love. It amazes me. My wife still loves me. She is a gracious woman and, and, and she persists in her love for me. And, and that is just, that alone is a, is a small representation of God's steadfast love. It's amazing that God is abounding in love. It's a relentless love. He persists in it. And, and it should amaze us. You know, we, I can remember having people come say to me, man, all you got to do is love God and love people. That's all you got to do. That's all. So just fulfill the whole law. Next time someone tells you that, tell them they're a legalist. Because they are. Jesus said, you know, that this is the whole law, to love God and love your neighbour. It's hard. So that God abounds in love is amazing attribute. That he persisted, that, that it's a relentless love. And you see that in his devotion to Israel. You see that in the fact that he purchases our salvation. He also keeps us by his power. No one shall take them out of my hand. It's, it's a steadfast love. Loving God. John MacArthur in his commentary on John 1.14, that Jesus Christ being full of grace and truth, says this, that Jesus Christ was the full expression of God's grace. All the necessary truth to save is available in him. He was the full expression of God's truth, which was only partially revealed in the Old Testament. What was foreshadowed through prophecy, types and pictures became substance, realised in the person of Christ. Therefore, he could declare, I am the way, the truth and the life. So God alone defines himself and that self-definition became substantive in the person of Christ. The God on the mountain is the God in the manger. As Pastor Mike said to me uh, when we were talking about this passage, God declares who he is 
God defines who he is. And thirdly, he demonstrates who he is. Let's look again, verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So that love that God has, he's demonstrated it. As I said, his steadfast love is amazing. Why did he set his love on Israel? Because of anything special in him? Why did he set his love on us? Anything special in us? No, in Deuteronomy 7, 7, God chose to love them and he chose to maintain that love in faithfulness to the promises he made. What is so amazing is what God had to endure in order to maintain that love. Christ is the embodiment of that steadfast love. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I'll never cast out. And Christ's life, death and resurrection is the ultimate demonstration of his steadfast love. We remember Romans 5.8. We know that passage. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Note here that sin is integral to understanding love. You can't preach the love of God without preaching about sin. Anyone who preaches God's love and never talks about sin is a liar because the very definition of God's love is bound up in our sin. That's the ultimate expression that God demonstrates his love to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he also loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God also demonstrates forgiveness. The Hebrew verb here means to lift or carry, a picture of what God does with the sins of his people, lifting the burden and carrying it away. Again, Christ embodies forgiveness. In fact, we see in the gospel accounts, and this is interesting, I think, that the Pharisees, you remember, there's a, I think there's several instances where the Pharisees are more shocked by Jesus forgiving sins than by him healing people, even raising the dead. That was what was absolutely shocking to them he forgave sins. While, while they rejected Christ, they still understood something that we would do well to understand, that the forgiveness of God should shock us. Can we sing amazing grace? Does, does his grace really amaze us? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my king, would die for me? Are we amazed by that? Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews as a compassionate high priest, not one who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a compassionate high priest we can go to, a throne of grace we can boldly go to, also, we see in uh, verse 7 here that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He's demonstrated that constantly throughout history. The three terms used, iniquity, transgression and sin, don't need to go into great detail with that. These three terms cover pretty much the entire scope of sin. Describing the refusal to do what is right, the insistence on doing what is wrong and every form of immorality you can imagine. It's a comprehensive 
list of things that God forgives. And that's what we all desperately need. God was speaking to Moses, talking about the thing that the Israelites needed, that we need most. You know, God knows everything we say, we do and even think. He knows every lie, every selfish act, every lustful thought. And our crimes are made even worse by the fact that our Creator is perfectly holy. Those close to me have heard me say this a number of times. I think the illustration is helpful and worth repeating that if I lie to my daughter, she can do nothing to me. But if I lie to my wife, I end up sleeping on the sofa. And if I lie to my boss, he can fire me. And if I lie to the government, they can throw me in jail or send me on a boat back to the convict colony of Australia. But in each situation, you see that it's the same sin, isn't it? It's lying. But what happens is the higher the authority I sinned against, the greater the consequence. Now, what if God is an infinite authority? How great would that be? That is why there is a hell, why all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Because hell is not just a reflection of how bad sin is, it's a reflection of God's holy character. We need, we need to be amazed by the forgiveness of God. Sometimes we need to get downwind of ourselves for a while to be amazed that he would forgive me. Just It should also not be lost on us here that as Moses was receiving this on the mountain, that he would later encounter the embodiment of these attributes on another mountain. When Christ went to the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses was there with him. wonder if he was thinking back to this at that time. So we see that God keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And if this was a topical church, if this was a place where we don't deal with the whole of the text, this would be a good place to stop because we like God up to this point. There's a yet, there's a but. It's really important. It's a turning point right here. I can't stop. I have to go on. I can't shortchange you by stopping here. There's something important. It says that God keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Just quickly on that last part, that God visiting iniquity to the third and fourth generation. I don't want to spend too long on that point other than simply to say that is not saying that fathers will pay for the sins of their children or children will pay for the sins of their fathers. What that's saying is that sin has consequences and repercussions that often spill to subsequent generations. Many of us have seen that or felt that in our own lives. The consequences of someone else's sin being passed on and and travelling to subsequent generations. But what I really want to draw your attention to here is what comes straight after the but, what comes straight after the yet, who will by no means clear the guilty. Because you see that there, brothers and sisters, that is the great mystery of the Bible. The great mystery is not how can a loving God send people to hell, The great mystery is not why doesn't God deal with all the evil in the world. 
The great mystery is how does God maintain his justice while demonstrating his love and his forgiveness and his mercy, his graciousness to us? How does he do that? I actually would contend that one way of looking at evangelism is helping the sinner to ask this question. Tell them, you're asking the wrong question. Here is the right question. Let me help you to ask the right question and then answer the question. How does God demonstrate his forgiveness, his love and his mercy to us while maintaining his justice? How does he do that? No person could come up with a way that is even possible. God is bound to his justice. He would have to un-God himself to just look the other way. He would be a corrupt judge. How does he demonstrate all of those attributes together? Well, they all come together through the person and work of Christ. But now, apart from the law, Romans 3, 21 to 26, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here we hear in the person of Christ, all of these attributes come together. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse, I, I, can, I call it the Everest of the MacArthur Study Bible, where Pastor John, he says that God treated Jesus as if he lived your life so that he could treat you as if you lived his life. So the justice of God is met. And this is a great question for the Jehovah's Witnesses, one they're not used to being asked. How could God be just if he sent Michael the archangel to die on the cross? I'll let you go free. You go and die on the cross. That wouldn't be just. He would not be maintaining his justice. Only if the lawgiver himself comes down from the judgment seat and says, I will die in your place. And he maintains his justice and his wrath is satisfied and then he is able to demonstrate his attributes of mercy and graciousness and love and long-suffering without compromising his justice. Because God's justice must be satisfied, that leaves only two kinds of people in the world. Sinners who have had God's wrath satisfied on their substitute or sinners who will pay for their sins for all eternity by having God's wrath poured out on them. So what kind of sinner are you? God calls us to repentance and faith in that substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. A propitiation, 
a satisfaction for God's wrath against our sin. He has sent us a substitute and he calls on us to repent of our sin and put our faith in him. That's what the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is. One's had his sins paid for, the other will pay for his sins. That's how these attributes come together. That is the great mystery of the Bible that would ultimately be solved. It wasn't resolved by the end of Malachi, really. We still awaited the one who would fulfill all of God's law and then satisfy God's wrath as a substitute. So at the cross, we have this, this wonderful exchange of the righteousness. Christ gives us his righteousness and takes our sin upon himself. God remains perfectly just and the justifier of the ungodly. So Moses here on the mountain knows in a sense less than us the revelation that would come, that came, comes to us in the New Testament. But he was presented. God presented himself to Moses. God declares who he is. He defines who he is and he demonstrates who he is. And the ultimate demonstration is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thankfully Moses didn't want to invent a God of his own imagination, a God on his own terms. In verse 8, we see the right response that all of us should have when we are presented with the one true living God. Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. He worshipped God on his terms. Once God had put himself on display. God made us, he owns us, he sustains us and he graciously withholds his just wrath against our sins, giving us time to repent and place our faith in Christ. How dare we refuse the worship that he rightly demands on his terms. Let's join with Moses this morning and bow in worship as we pray and give thanks. Gracious God, creator of heaven and earth, we thank you today that we can come around your word, that you are a speaking God, that you have defined yourself, that you have demonstrated who you are. We have no excuse. We can plead no ignorance. As Paul says on Mars Hill, the times of ignorance, God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. I pray, Lord, that those who are not believers, those who have not been worshipping you on your terms, those who may have devised an idol of their own imagination. I pray, Lord, this morning they would repent and worship you as you really are, the one true living God, not some idol of their imagination, not some golden calf that resides in the recesses of their minds, but the one true living God. We thank you, Lord, that we have your word that you have spoken to us through your word, that you have explained yourself in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As this event was a landmark event in Israel's history, I, I hope and pray that this text would be a landmark text in the minds of, of people here at Grace Life today.
that it would profoundly affect us in our lives and profoundly affect the way we communicate with this lost and fallen world. I ask you would work in our hearts and minds today. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.